I'm Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. You're wearing a suit, I'm wearing a sweater, and this is Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar. We are super excited to be here with Joel Cohn. Joel runs an online legal training platform, education platform called Talks On Law. Joel, thanks for being here. It's a real pleasure. And we gave Joel the option of what he wanted to drink here, uh, Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar, and he chose, what tequila did you choose? I mean, are we getting are we getting sponsored? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, that's, that's I, I, I may have said uh, Casa Amigos or Clase Azul, but it seems like uh, budget constraints were, yeah, were we, in effect. Yeah, we, we went a little bit lower lower budget <laughs> than that. But everyone at home can pretend that we're drinking Casa Amigos. But I, I want you to explain how you made your drink because it looks amazing. And the way that you looked, the way that you made it looked amazing as well. You made it in a James Bond-type capacity. So what, what did you do there? Right. Uh, so this is, I guess, a Paloma-esque drink. It's okay. a little bit of fresh grapefruit. I, uh, in a very elegant way, squeezed it like like I was milking a cow, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just some fresh fruit. Make up for the mild toxicity of drinking alcohol. Yeah. Is this your drink of choice when you walk into a bar? No, uh, but I do like it a lot. I thought a little bit about the burping effects of effervescent beverages <laughs> and figured your your audience is uh, is subjected to enough torture by you guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joel, I want to jump right in. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about um, where you grew up, uh, what your childhood was like. Sure. Um, wow, you guys really started at the beginning. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina. Inside the womb. Yeah, it was warm. <laughs> I learned warm to love the sea. Um, yeah, I grew up in eastern North Carolina, a place that's probably not recognizable to most of your audience. It was notable for a couple of things. One, I believe it was the city in America that had the most franchise restaurants wow. per capita, uh, or, or excuse me, as a proportion of the restaurant total. So, um, you know, Red Lobster was a big deal. And it's also, it was the leading tobacco producing county in America. So you'd see bumper stickers that say uh, "Tobacco pays my bills" or things like that. What so is your favorite healthy place to grow up? Yeah, it was healthy. What's your favorite franchise restaurant? You know, I, I really liked Red Lobster as a as a youth. I liked the cheesy bread. Um, my mom was a fan of Chili's. Okay, um, can't go wrong with Chili's. Yeah, I don't really think of Chili's in the same way that you would think of Red Lobster or. Or other franchise restaurants. Chili's is actually pretty good. Yeah, like good. you can have a good meal yeah. at Chili's. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my great grandmother. So I grew up. Um, my mom's, my mom's dad's mom. So my great grandmother uh, was from Portugal, and she believed that Golden Corral was perhaps the finest restaurant on earth, uh, mostly because of the amazing deal that you could eat as much as you wanted, um, but also just the experience. So we we went there sometimes, especially when she was <laughs> the visiting. Ambience. The ambiance of Golden You Corral. know, warm and welcoming. They sing to you if it's your birthday. Um, obviously, a non-IP protected happy birthday song. Um, did, you, did you have any lawyers in your life growing up? No, not really. Um, my, my family, I guess there's no real lawyers in the family. Uh, more doctors and business types. But, you know, my dad ran a couple of small businesses, and so he was always getting in trouble with the law. So I thought, <laughs> hey, you know, it seems like this law thing is pretty practical. 
What kind of student were you in, in high school? I was an undercover nerd. I thought being cool was basically the meaning of life. So I would, um, you know, if I could go back to one period of my life and maybe change some things, I think a lot of people feel the same about high school, but um, I might have been a little bit less preoccupied with. Um, it's it's crazy even now to think how little some other high school kid's opinion matters, but uh, it did at the time. Um, so, I, you know, I, I worked hard. I, I had good grades, but I was also really focused on sports and creating this veneer of I don't give a bleep. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is this cursing mm-hmm. aloud on this podcast? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, like, I, you know, I, I was like the nonchalant Got it. nerd. And where did you end up in college? I stayed in North Carolina. I went to Wake Forest, um, and I actually stayed in North Carolina as well for law school. I went to Duke. Gotcha. Did you go straight through? I took a year off. I thought, so I genuinely believed I wanted to do a career in politics, which I understand is common with some of your guests. Um, and I thought, you know, law is a good stepping stone in that direction. Um, and I thought maybe if I'm running for elected office, North Carolina uh, would be the place to go to school as well. And so I guess, you know, I thought of the law as important and, and, and a powerful tool and et cetera, but it was more politicians tend to be lawyers. And if I want to make policy, I need a law degree. How did you decide between Wake Forest and Duke basketball? <laughs> um, Is it still a struggle to this day? Is there a tension between? Yeah, I mean, people in North Carolina are insane about about college basketball. Um, it's never been a challenge for me. I I actually am one of the few people who... If Duke has lost in the NCAA tournament, I'll cheer for UNC because I'm at least, you know, my brother went to UNC and it's North Carolina school and I don't genuinely feel go to hell, Carolina, go to hell. Um, So for me, when I was undergrad, I was cheering for Wake. Um, Unfortunately, Wake Forest basketball program hasn't, has kind of gone down a little bit in, I mean, at that time they were... You know, they were ranked in the top 10 a couple of times during my uh, undergrad experience. Post, you know, I'll cheer for Wake, but unfortunately, Duke just happens to be in more of the big tournaments. So, you know, it's not it's not that hard. I'll, I'll just cheer for Duke. When, at what point in your life did you take the LSAT? I was trying to figure out how I can make Cooper segue from Wake Forest, Duke to policy or law discussion. And you did a pretty good job, Cooper. I have to say. Yeah, I mean I could I could rank that transition however you want, but <laughs> I've seen I've seen smoother transitions. I was just completely zoning out. I didn't even listen to the conversation. Oh, God, so. why do I bother? I mean, how many drinks did you guys have before this lawyer walked into the bar? Um, I took the LSAT. I actually taught LSAT at Kaplan. So I took the LSAT somewhere in my junior or senior year. I I don't particularly remember I'm sure I took it at Kaplan, so it didn't count. And then I actually started teaching LSAT before I had taken the LSAT as as a way to get kind of, uh, I don't know, like a, a shortcut to studying. Because if I have to teach someone else, then, They let hey. you teach the LSAT before you take the LSAT? Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you have to, to be fair, and this is going to be 
a humble brag, so uh, stay tuned. You have to do relatively well yeah. on the like I, in-house I, test. I taught it at Syracuse, but I had actually taken the LSAT first. But their their method of proving that you did well if you had taken it was just asking you what your LSAT score was. So I could have I could have said anything and perfect, right? I said perfect. I didn't know what the number was. Perfect. Whatever perfect. The, whatever that is. Yeah. All right. One ninety. Yeah, all, all the points plus. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, so you took it, did you take it while you were in college or you took it that year that you were between undergrad and law school? I took it while I was in college. Uh-huh. I actually took it while I was in college doing study abroad and I had to go to Paris to take the LSAT. And this is another regret. I went to Paris to take the LSAT instead of going to Oktoberfest with my buddies and the proctor fucked up the test. So it got thrown out. He he ended one logic game section uh, ten minutes too soon. So and and actually one kid raised his hand and spoke for the rest of us. You know, this hero, this is an unspoken hero, <laughs> uh, raised his hand and said, "I'm sorry, but there's ten more minutes on the clock." And the proctor was so pig-headed, he kicked that guy out of the LSAT. He he said, "Excuse me, this is non-speaking." The guy said, I know, but there's 10 more minutes. And he said, you need to remove yourself. Probably good for him because there's no way you could do well with 10 minutes off of the Yeah, yeah. he saved an extra two hours of his time. (laughs) Um, And like, you know, the rest of us powered through. But at the end, I'd never even got my score. I canceled it. And uh, um, LSAT was kind enough to let me take it again for free. Right. That's before. That was when you could, you had to cancel it if you didn't want it to count against you, right? Now you can combine... You can combine LSAT scores now. Yeah, no matter what, you could take them as many times as you want. Yeah, you there was there was some mystery. Maybe some schools were were cool with you taking it more than once, but there was evidently some schools who looked more favorably upon the hmm. single one and done winner. Um, so you know, there was a lot of strategery involved. Yeah, makes sense for law students who are just like crippled with self doubt to begin with. The option of canceling your score is such a weird thing to offer them. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the ultimate deal or no deal. <laughs> but everyone type says of no situation. deal. <laughs> right. Because I could see plenty of scenarios where someone killed the exam, but they're just so neurotic that they cancel the score afterwards. Well, right? that was probably my perfect LSAT, but I'll never know. 190? 190. Tell us a little bit about your experience at Duke. Look, I hear a lot of people complain about law school. Um, I wonder what you guys see since you interview a lot. Uh, I loved law school. I thought Duke does an exceptional job of kind of balancing the competitive, rigorous, academic vibe without making it internally competitive. So, you know, if someone asked me for notes or more likely if I asked someone else for notes, it would be jaw-droppingly surprising if someone said, no, you should have gone to class. Uh, It was very collegial, very fun. And I think, you know, probably with some, I was, I was, I was looking at, you know, Columbia. I looked at some other big city schools. um, And you always, I, I believe as humans, we're really well trained to make ourselves think our decisions were the right ones. Um, but, you know, with that caveat, I liked the way there was a real campus vibe. There's, you know, a, a growing restaurant scene in Durham, North Carolina. But, 
you know, let's be real. It's not New York City. Um, and a lot of the social life of the law students is with your classmates. And as a result, I have a lot of really great friends from law school. I went to Michigan and had a very, very similar experience. People were really nice and everyone who I was friends with there were other law students, which sort of allows you to form really tight connections with your classmates, which I think you get in other places. But I I definitely think when you have a campus, um, you really get that. And I think Michigan, I mean, without naming any names in a negative way, I think Michigan has a, uh, also has a good rep as a happy law school campus. Yes, for sure. Were you, when you were in law school, were you still, was it, was the politics thing still in the back of your mind or did that during those three years, did that start to start to change? Yeah. I mean, I had done some politics related work prior and in the interim between undergrad and law school. Um, I still kept the door open. I, I did actually did something weird that was often brought up in my interviews, but I, I did a joint degree. I did a I did an LLM in international and comparative law, hmm. which uh, I can tell you is a fantastic uh, waste of money. I mean, fantastic hmm. in the good Was sense. It, did it require an extra year? It didn't, but it, it, it had some like summer right. components. It's fantastic as in like, I genuinely enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. I think I did get some opportunities to learn a lot more. The only waste of money aspect of it is the market doesn't care. Right. So- you know, if you're interviewing for, at least in the mainstream law world, if you're sure. interviewing for a job at Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, they're going to say, well, why do you have an LLM? Right. Are you a non-citizen? Are you mm-hmm. a foreign lawyer? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that said, I thought, why don't I continue where I had been going prior, deepen my understanding in certain policy, international affairs, uh, areas of the law, and I did a, some really fun uh, internships and overseas stuff, even in law school. Um, and I'll just keep that open in case I want to go that direction. Did you tell us a little bit about the internships that you that you had? Yeah, I mean, I worked. I did a little bit uh, in the private sector. I worked at uh, Jones Day's uh, Shanghai office. Um, I also went down to Argentina and studied uh, at a law school there. And, you know, well, maybe you don't know, but Argentina has like a really great nightlife. And I found myself focusing a little bit too much on the fun. And then at some point, a friend of mine who happened to be in the Ministry of the Economy for Argentina, he had been offered a job on this council um, doing kind of law and economics related to water rights uh, of an important of the of an important river that goes in so- in South America that you know goes through Brazil, Uruguay, Paraguay and Argentina and I ended up taking that job that he had been offered and politely declined um, and that was really fun and interesting and you know working on uh, water issues which, unfortunately, aren't going away. And then, you know, working with, you know, trying to create proposals for the uh, World Bank to try and get them some more money. Um, so so, so the cool. LLM opened up those opportunities, but not necessarily exactly. when, you, when you came back to New York to look for a job. It, it, I think when I came back and looked for a job, people were, I mean, 
It's got to be a way to spin it, right? There's got to be a way to spin it. There's a way to spin it. But, you know, it's it is it's that like tiny bit of X factor that everyone looks for on a resume to to make sure you're not just a paper machine that happens to have good grades and uh, a good school. I didn't think that it helped me uh, particularly. It certainly didn't hurt me. Um, if anything, it just led to that why question, and then it was immediately dropped. And then the the interviewer would would take the direction into somewhere where they thought was more important. How did you even become aware of it? How did you decide to to do it? I I mean, I think uh, a lot of lawyers are good at following the school path. So, you know, you go to this school, you try and get this result so that you can go to the next school. And maybe it's my mom who is just an amazing uh, believer in enrichment um, you know, if you could get one degree, why not get? If you can get two degrees, why why get one? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I thought I thought maybe I would do a JD MBA. I thought maybe I'd do um, a JD public policy, and I ended up this one worked out, and uh, Duke was made you know made sweeten the pot a little bit, and um, I went that way, and no regrets. It was an amazing program. How did you decide uh, or how did you ultimately end up in New York after law school? Yeah, that's a good question. I thought – so my 1L summer, I worked at um, a law firm in Shanghai. Then I did a like transnational law institute in Hong Kong. I came out of that not having any clearer picture on what I wanted to do as an attorney. So I literally went to one of the most informed – three, two L's who was one year above me and just said, can I have your list of law firms that you want to, that you applied to? And those are the ones that I shortlisted. Mm -hmm. And I picked basically based on firms that were very prestigious, but also had a a number of different practice groups. Mm -hmm. So, you know, while, uh, you know, Quinn Emanuel is a killer firm for litigation, I wouldn't have I wouldn't even considered Quinn Emanuel because I wasn't sure I wanted to do litigation. So I ended up going to Skadden. I wanted to try out all the menu of of uh, legal options. And even more ambitious, I was trying to try out an array of cities. So I was like, mm-hmm. why don't I do DC and New York mm-hmm. and I'll try a few different practice groups. And very quickly after arriving in New York for the first half of the program, I realized I would not be able to accomplish all the goals mm-hmm. of deciding on city and practice groups. So I, I, I quickly I, I asked the head of uh, the head of uh, attorney I forgot what they call her, but Carol Sprague, who's the the empress of uh, <laughs> incoming lawyers, if it's possible to cancel the second half of my summer and just stay in New York and focus right. more on what do I want to do. So I guess. And she said, no. in a way, <laughs> she said, would you, if you were doing that, dis- that going through that process today, do you think you would approach it any differently? Yeah. I mean, I was listening to another one of your podcasts and I do think, you know, it's, it's really easy in, in hindsight to do things better. Obviously for the listeners who know what type of law they want to do, law school can be so much more powerful for those who are like me, who just thought, I want to be a great lawyer without a real, you know, power focus. Um, it can feel 
um, both exciting and incredibly um, kind of rudderless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was my way of tackling it. I would say to, to lawyers uh, or budding lawyers to be try and get as much experience as you can, even before law school. Um, try and ask, you know, you know what I think is, is a cool thing to do is to ask professors for something that's an easy give, which is instead of like, hey, fancy professor at my law school, will you hire me as your uh, assistant or will you um, give me a recommendation for this clerkship? Just say, will you give me 10 minutes of your time to talk about your career or to talk about yeah. You know, interesting totally. um, careers in the law, so I can get a better understanding. And I think I would have liked to have done that more. I think students are are scared of their professors. I know I was in certain circumstances, and you're right. I think if you approach law professors and say, "I want to pick your brain," they're more than happy. Most of them, anyway, are more than happy to spend time with you and talk to you in a, a really productive way. I think they understand that they're, you're not necessarily getting career. Uh, practical career advice from their class, but the ability to sit down with them in a class in, in an office and get that could be really useful and helpful. And I would say to the, you know, the law students out there, I mean, these guys are obviously brilliant and, and I, these women and men are obviously brilliant. Um, some of them can be prima donnas. So make sure that you've at least taken the time to learn about them before they give you some of their valuable time, because, yeah. you know, the last thing you want to do is sit down uh, with, you know, a leading constitutional scholar mm-hmm. and ask her about, um, you know, property law that's, you know, not even there within their, you know, area of expertise. You know, try and, try and, um, try and do a little bit of that, like, work. It's, it's sometimes hard, too, when you're, like, if you're asking for career advice from these people who, you know, graduated the top of their class from Harvard or Yale and then went and clerked for some circuit court judge and then went to the Supreme Court and then went straight into academia. It's like that's a pretty hard path to to follow. I think part of it, though, is if you're asking them for the advice, maybe it's not just the advice that's important. You're starting to develop a relationship with them in a way that other students aren't necessarily forging the same kinds of relationship as you're asking about them, and very few students do. So I think to that extent, it's helpful. Agreed. Um, tell us a little bit about your experience at Skadden. What was that like? Um, I think it was, it was a very, it was great training. Um, I don't think I realized how hard I could be working, um, until, until I started at Skadden. You know, what practice I, area or what practice group did you go into? When you I ended up there? in M&A. They do a rotation program, which is what I was really excited about. I was excited about the kind of free-for-all that you can do during the summer where, like, you can pick work from whatever group you want, mm-hmm. assuming they're they're interested in giving you some. Um, so I did a little bit of project finance. I did a little bit of what they call uh, banking, which is kind of a debt practice. Mm-hmm. I did a little bit of international arbitration. And then, you know, this was during kind of the heat of the crisis. So M&A was pretty quiet. Right. So when I was about to start my M&A rotation, excuse me, um, one of the joys of being <laughs> a, a lawyer in the bar. Um, anyway, so when I was about to start my M&A rotation, uh, they decided all the M&A lawyers should get some more skills because, frankly— we're a massive M&A firm, but there's just not enough meat to go around. So I ended up 
you know, adding a international arbitration uh, piece as well. I can't remember what your question was. And I saw you're checking your phone, so you probably don't remember. <laughs> I do. I'm only checking just to make sure that the next guest is not arrived yet. Yeah, I hope I hope Barack Obama doesn't come around. <laughs> <laughs> how, how long were you at Skadden for? Good question. I guess four years. Um, I'd have to look at the exact dates, but maybe four years, give or take six months. And after how long had you been there before you started to sort of get an itch to explore other opportunities? Look, I mean, I think a lot of lawyers start at a big law firm thinking, I'm just going to do my dues, pay my dues, (laughs) literally pay my student loans, and then move on to the next thing. It's just, you very quickly realize you don't have that much time to think about the next thing because you're working, you're working pretty hard. And then you're in New York and you want to have a great time as well. So, you know, when I was, when I was working, you know, 15 hour days at at the law firm, and then I'd have a day or two off, I wasn't necessarily journaling on, you know, what's the next step in my career, especially when I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed working at Skadden. I enjoyed, and I want to say a couple of things that I really liked. One is, one of the first times I've had, and obviously at this point I didn't have that much working experience, but without a doubt, I mean, I could pretty much rely that anyone I worked with was smart Mm -hmm. and was hardworking, which for most people out there in America, around the world, that is a luxury you just don't have. And that's a pretty great luxury to have. So I really liked that. Um, I liked that, you know, despite some of the hard-hitting reputation that firms like Skadden have. The partners that I worked for were actually incredibly thoughtful, um, kind individuals as well. Uh, I would double down on my statement from before about going and talking to law professors as being even more important once you're in the career path. Mm -hmm. Go and talk to the partners that you're working with and ask them about anything, literally anything that you think they care about, uh, or, you know, anything that you actually have a genuine passion in because it's really important to create that relationship. And in these big firms, you can really get lost. Um, so I got lucky having some really great partners to work for and great colleagues to work with. They're just – it came to a point at some juncture that I realized I probably wasn't going to be a great M&A lawyer, uh, at least at that level. Um it just didn't play to my skill set, and I didn't have it in me to burn that extra midnight oil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could give you a, I give you a quick kind of coming to Jesus moment if you want. Yeah, sure. Um, it's almost Christmas, so let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> How many Jews in the room? <laughs> Cooper's, I think, the only one. William okay. Cooper Knowlton, the only Jew in the room. Wow. Well, I am too. So uh, Joel Cohen, uh, and no one's surprised. Except for everyone in Eastern North Carolina who yeah. didn't even know what <laughs> Jewish was. Right. Um, okay. So I remember, I mean, I guess a couple of things. One, I was working on a uh, an agreement that had some type of sophisticated mechanism and the partner had given it to me, which I was you know, feeling good about. So I, I did go a little bit extra on this one, did some research found a bunch of, uh, you know, found some precedent within the 
the firm's um, database. And then I, you know, I tweaked it. And then I, I came back to him and I was like, look, this is what the client wants. This is what uh, the other side wants. I showed him the, my structure and he said, this looks good. Where'd you get it? And after kind of retracing the steps, he ended up scrapping it, not because he didn't think it was a good idea, but because they had done so much work with this client, they wanted to use a structure that the client was already familiar with, which, you know, you guys are practicing lawyers. It makes sense. You don't have to start from scratch. You don't have to explain something new. You don't have to make them rethink prior uh, arrangements, what, whatever it was. You know, he was like, look, you know, this does take care of the issue. It works but why don't we use something that we've done with them before that also works? And that was kind of like, uh, what do you call it? Deflating my sales. Mm -hmm. that I, I, I thought I'd come up with a, yeah. a better mousetrap. And the partner was just saying, you know, law isn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily about a better mousetrap. It's about, you know, making sure that this is, you know, battle tested. And sure. client service. And client service. So, that, you know, that was one thing. I, I just didn't feel like I was getting uh, the ability to be, creative. And sometimes I really, you know, I actually wanted to be an actor at one point. Like there's no, um, there's no less, uh, intellectual and more creative. I mean, I don't want to besmirch actors, but you know, I wasn't getting that intellectual itch scratched. I mean, that creative itch scratched plenty of intellectual. And then the other thing was, you know, I sat down for a meeting with this one partner and he had told me to read this 80 page indenture, uh, which I don't know if our audience is familiar with, but you can just suffice it to say that it, it is, put you to sleep material. And I went in after spending, you know, five or six hours reading the, the thing or 12, I can't remember how, how long. And he had a better understanding of the indenture than I did. And I just felt like, look, if this guy who's on the top of his game, who's running the, running this deal at such a big level has the time and effort and wherewithal to sit down and mm -hmm. crush this brain numbing mm -hmm. piece of, you know, non-literature literature. Do I have what it takes? And I, I genuinely walked away from that conversation feeling both awed and a little bit, uh, a little bit like I need to start escalating my exit path. Looking backwards, you think that was a little unfair to yourself given, you know, now you've, in your, in your career, now, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, you meet all kinds of attorneys, uh, different shapes and sizes, different career paths. Uh, you obviously were only four years into being a lawyer at that point. Maybe three. Three years, three, four years. You were you were a kid when it comes to, to the law. Um, do, you, do you feel like you were kind of being a little too hard on yourself in that moment? No, I think I was, I was being good enough. It was a hard look in the mirror that in order to become great at this level, and, and look, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a person who's got a lot of love for themselves. I think I have a lot of, you know, I have some of the skills that would make for a great M&A attorney, but some of them I just, I didn't feel like I had at least at these multi-billion dollar M&A deal levels where, you know, you need to be meticulous you need to be willing to grind out thousands of hours um, to put, you know, something big and and to these lawyers, to us when we were in there, this is big and beautiful. You know, we were really excited, um, and you know, I, I just felt like uh, maybe that wasn't my 
the career where I could really shine the most if I was going to also be happy. I think that's a really important lesson. I think that very few people in that world have that realization. I think a lot of people just go through the motions and um, I think to to have the maturity two, three, four years into your career to realize like, oh, this is not, you know, this isn't what interests and inspires me. And, um, I, you know, knowing that you could do it and you could do more and you could sort of muddle through um, is one thing. But I think it, 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 it is important for most people to realize like if I do want to really thrive in my career, like you have to be excited about reading that. 60 page, super boring <laughs> 80, document, 80 page, 80 page. And if you're just not like, it might've been 180, I, you know, yeah. I blocked out it a lot of been 250,000, yeah. a million pages. No. pages. Yeah. And, and I remember also sitting down at one of these lunches where, you know, you sit, it's a lunch and learn. And to my left is this other associate who's also in my class level. And across the table are these two sort of internally famous. And then if you're in the MA world, you know, relatively famous, uh, M&A partners, and they start talking to this guy about interesting M&A deals and kind of how there's a shift in in certain deal flow. And this associate who's, at this point, a year and a half into the job, or two years into the job, is is holding his weight with, you know, Lou Kling, who's been there for however many years, who probably you know, has invented M&A structures. You know, it was also that. Like, am I spending my weekends thinking about the next uh, breakthrough in in acquisitions or, or, you know, trying to understand tax structures better? And I really wasn't. And like... So how did you you approach the next steps? I thought, you know, look, where where do I have some, some useful skills that I can use? And I think I think some of the, you know, some of the skills that had served me well in prior jobs were, you know, communications related or strategic uh, decision making related or even even, I, you know, I thought I was a pretty good manager of 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 a team or you know maybe not I hadn't run my own company but I thought you know I do have some experience in the law and I have, I think I could be good at something where there's a little bit more opportunity to be strategic, where there's an opportunity to kind of try things and fail, try things and hopefully succeed. And so I very quickly started to think about doing something in, in the entrepreneurial world. I, and like a lawyer, I went through kind of step by step, you know, do I want to go to business school? Or maybe I'll go to one of the, you know, real entrepreneur law firms out there and and try and represent entrepreneurs and think about, you know, that as kind of a step towards becoming one. And then ultimately, I I started to think, look, do I want to spend three years having fun with some really smart people at a fancy school? Yeah. Should I do that? Maybe not. Maybe I'll put that 200 grand and try and start something myself. So that, you know, that ultimately, I tried to go the route of kind of DIY uh, business school by starting starting a company. Were you doing that while you were still at the firm or is this after you had already left? You're starting to put I this mean, together? 
I started to think about it at the firm. Um, obviously, when I was doing client work, not thinking about my own thing, but you know, my weekends where I wasn't working, I started to I started to look at a couple of ideas. I actually found someone, and I was starting a company in a totally different space, still at while at Skadden. And I thought, you know, if I have to, I'll hire, I'll hire a manager to run the company. Um, I'll be, you know, on the board or or some type of executive, but chilled role. Um, and I found an amazing technical partner, um, and we actually started moving forward in this kind of tech company idea. Then that guy got an offer from Sony to do something completely risk free and extremely high paid. And so he drops, uh, he drops me like a bad habit. Yeah, like a bad habit. And and the problem with with a company that you're not, where you don't have the technical skills, is you're replaceable. But you know you can't really do that much if your technical co-founder leaves. So I spent a couple of months trying to find a new technical co-founder. I wasn't able to, and then uh, I ended up coming coming up with the idea for Tox on Law. And there, at least, I knew. Look, if I'm in, and and by the way, Talks on Law, we we explain the law through video. It's it's nothing. We're not inventing AI. We're not uh, you know blockchain tech. It's it's stuff that I can do, and I can hire the technical expertise in a way that um, I'm not completely beholden on on one on one person. So you know, I guess that was. That was all still at Skadden, and then I ended up feeling comfortable enough to to make the transition full time um, to talks on law. And even then, I you know it was it was a little nerve wracking um, for someone who had always had either a full time salaried job or a mm-hmm. full time educational uh, path. How did you come up with the idea? You know. I was talking to a few people. I think there was a a friend of mine who had done a case study in business school on the continuing education space and, you know, had done the legwork that there was there was an opportunity to make continuing education. And this, you know, Talks and Law started as something like a TED Talks but for law. And by the way, with uh continuing education credit. For the law students, you don't care yet, but eventually lawyers need what's called CLE or MCLE, which is your continuing education. And this business student friend, she kind of brought me her data on the market. And I started to get really excited about it. I also am like a big consumer of edutainment content. So, you know, this, for example, this is meant to be entertaining. And I apologize the audience if it's not. <laughs> um, but it's meant to be enter- entertaining as well as educational. And at that time, there really wasn't that much in the legal space that kind of fit that bill. And I thought, you know, why don't we get out there and start doing that? How many years have you been running Talks on Law now? I guess four, five, four or five years. What's been the biggest difference between running this business and working at a law firm? Hmm. The gym on the 30th floor that has, you know, 
the firm logo printed on it and uh, my own secretary on day one. And no, I, I mean, it's more than the perks. I mean, it's, it's, it's totally different. You guys run your own firm? Yes. It's totally different to run something than to be even a senior person in a company. Uh, so, I mean, and I think that goes both ways. It, it's very exciting to be able to, to make decisions and, and shift, uh, you know, priorities and, and see an opportunity and say, look, I want to do this cool thing on blockchain and, and try and partner with this really cool, uh, this cool leading cutting edge um, crypto uh, business and, and create really useful, interesting content and then go out and do it. But it's also, you know, it's a big worry that you're missing something that, you know, you could you could be managing your team better, that at the end of the day, you're responsible for, especially if you take outside money, you guys can't because you're a law firm, I guess. We can't, but we do. Lots okay, good. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it'll be good until it's not. <laughs> no, no one's listening to the podcast anyway. So. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a different kind of stress. Sure. Like, do you do you think your legal education and your the years spent at Scadden were valuable in terms of starting this business? Or if you were to start this business today, would you have thought about? Would you would, do you wish that you had other types of training? Yeah, I mean, one hundred percent both. I mean, first of all, I'm in the legal space, so I sit down with a leading judge, or if I sit down with. Um, you know, a, a top Harvard law professor, it certainly helps that I sure. am a lawyer and can understand what they're doing. I, I think, why don't I give like one example of something that's really helped that I, I'll thank Skadden for and then something that I, I think is actually hurt. The thing that, uh, one thing that helped is working in a big law firm, you have a work ethic that's probably so strong that it might even be unhealthy uh, you know, I remember going to sleep holding my BlackBerry and for the audience who's millennial, a BlackBerry <laughs> is like an old iPhone. Um, but like, you know, I would go to sleep holding my BlackBerry and I would be upset if I didn't wake up when it vibrated. Um, if it, you know, not, not every night, but if it was like a very active part of a deal cycle. So if it was near signing or near closing, um, I would want to be that level of customer service. And that's been really helpful. And I wish, you know, some, you know, some of the people that we work with would have that work ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like I'll look at customer service emails at two o'clock at night right? and I don't think anything of it. It's right. not, it's not beneath me. So, I mean, I think, I think the the work ethic and dedication to, to customer service that you get from working at a place you know, a big law shop um, is invaluable. I think one thing that law school and being a lawyer maybe doesn't lend itself to in an entrepreneur is I am a well-trained and you guys are well-trained risk spotting machines, right? Like for the last 10, 50, however many years, I don't know how you guys look, you have a beard, I don't know. Uh, you're looking at things and trying to see risk. You're looking at things and seeing what's going to rise and what's going to be the problem. And as an entrepreneur, you really need to, you need to have that skill, but you really need to be also able to inspire. You need to be able to show 
the vision for how you know we're going to change the world by making law more accessible. We're going to change the world by making um, everyone have a better understanding of the law. Or we're going to you know we're going to give lawyers the opportunity to communicate in a way where they can be uh, they can be trusted because the platform is trusted. And as an entrepreneur, I every day have to. Um, when I'm talking to investors and when I'm talking to my team or when I'm talking to um, occasionally when when press has some interest in us, occasionally, you know, I have to be that kind of champion. And I'm still a lawyer at heart. You know, you know when people ask me questions, sometimes I, I, I give risk factors and that doesn't, that's not great for an entrepreneur. So I think, I think for that reason, um, entrepreneur attorneys sometimes have to do a rethink. For someone who's listening right now who isn't familiar with Talks on Law, is there a single piece of content or something that came out recently that you would encourage people to check out to get sort of a good sense of, of the, the stuff that you're putting out into the world right now? There's, there's kind of two formats. One is the sort of more mainstream where we explain something. So we'll have someone like Daniel Capra, who is a law professor here in New York, uh, Fordham, I believe he's Fordham, but he teaches at Columbia, NYU. He's literally written. He's an evidence. Professor, he's an evidence right? guy. Yeah. yeah, he's literally written the rules of evidence, the federal rules of evidence for the last, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years. We sit down with him and we talk, and he explains what are your rights when it comes to a police stop. So, yeah. like, do you have to answer police questions? Do you um, can they search your pockets? You know, things like that will get hundreds of thousands of views. Sure. Um, and that's you know that's not necessarily. It could be good for the law student audience, but, you know, that's for anyone. And, you know, we'll do things like, can you own a color? And we'll have, you know, Kate Spade's general counsel. Um, can you own a color? Yeah, you can own a color. Hmm. And I learned that by watching this explainer video. But, like, Tiffany, you know, that eggshell blue they own, and Louboutin owns the the red on the bottom of a shoe, and et cetera. And so— you know, those are like quick explainers, and we're working hard to to develop more. And we're we're partnering with like top law schools, top law firms for them to create some of those because you know, maybe they want to carve out this area. We're great right. at IP, or maybe this law firm's like we're great at this particular issue. Why don't we be the people explaining that? Yeah. The other thing we do are these interviews. We call them talks because we're so creative. Um, but we'll sit down, and sometimes I'll be the one sitting down with top law professors um, from you know, leading schools or, or just women and men who are really at the cutting edge or leading judges. Um, I think last month we sat down with John Quinn, founder of Quinn Emanuel, and talked about litigation tips. That's why you gave the Quinn Emanuel plug at the beginning of yeah, the, I gotta, of the podcast every time, episode. Yeah, every time um, I say Quinn Emanuel, I make $500. That's so, great. You know, That's good. Even if it's in private. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, no, I genuinely enjoyed it, and it, it's interesting to sit down with somebody who started one of the, you know, a, a law firm that's, that's now making yeah. over a billion dollars a year. I mean, maybe, maybe I'll sit down with you in ten years. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a headache. No, we'll we'll be that level of law firm, but we won't sit down when I'm at that point. Yeah. There's, why bother? Yeah, there's no reason. Yeah. You'll be up in a tower, uh, you know, bottling your own urine. <laughs> maybe I'll have a gym with my logo on it. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. I was thinking more like the aviator. You're thinking more like I'm thinking uh, more just real life success. Yeah, correct. Okay, good. Well, I didn't work big law, so I didn't have that perk. Yeah, I mean, I worked for the government. I went to Bally's during lunch. That was my 
I'm, that is an amazing experience. I mean, you're a prosecutor. You were you're out there in the trenches. So, you know, we did some great content with leading with with notable prosecutors. We talk about prosecutors overreach, we talk about prosecutors power, we talk about prosecutors reform. And these are these are 30-minute interviews that a law student um, can enjoy and 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 watch and listen. And and by the way, they're free. So, go to www.talksonlaw.com. It's interesting because when you first started your career, you wanted to cycle through all these areas of law, and now in this career— Now I do it every day. Right. Yeah. So so if you can't get the job you want, make one. Make it up for yourself. I guess the last question is, now having had exposure to all these areas that you didn't necessarily have when you were practicing, let's say you're going back to the beginning of your legal career. Is there one area now that you're more interested in that you would have more of a desire to be involved in? Great question. Uh, you must you must have some practice running this podcast. Um, I'd say, look, I mean, I wouldn't, it's not something that I want to go do now, but if I could go back, I would focus on something like IP or like uh, some cutting edge technology like DNA or, um, or even... I mean, everyone's going to say AI, but you know, it's it's fascinating. It's just it's just really interesting stuff. Um, you know, you just we want to focus on sperm ownership, don't you? That's the look that came out. Look, we I had that guy come in to talk about can you you know selling human organs. We talked about law related to selling human organs, and he mentions something about a case where a woman stole a guy's sperm, impregnated herself, and then sued him for uh, paternity. And I said, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna have to have you come back and talk about that in greater detail." And we did, but you know, I, I might not I might not pursue that. But look, we, you know, I just talked to uh, we just talked with a professor about gerrymandering. I think those issues, you know, issues pick something that you're actually passionate about um, and become an expert. Um, you know, even if it's water, you know, I did some. You know, I was telling you about my water experience. Like, if I could, if I could give advice to law students. You know, before the robots and AIs take all our jobs, just pick something that you're passionate about, and uh, and if you can make a career out of that, then you'll be pretty lucky. Squeeze that grapefruit with gusto. Squeeze it with gusto, and if not, you know, just do do right by your clients, and you'll still you'll still be pretty happy. Yeah, awesome. All right, Joel. Well, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you coming out tonight. It's great. Thanks. Thank you, guys. 